You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myth and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have a very special guest, Gareth Porter, to talk to us about the recent history of Iran and the myth of the Iranian nuclear state. So um, let's get started. I know you wrote a book called Manufactured Crisis. Um, I know your book kind of starts a little contemporarily, but I think people have a lot of misinformation about Iran. So can we start with a little bit of background information of Iran? Um, Yes. Mostly, can we start with what happened in the 1950s with Mossadegh? Could you explain? Yes, of course. The setting here is that in the early 1950s, the British were controlling the oil resources of Iran. And President Mossadegh of Iran took the remarkably heroic step in uh, 1952-53 of nationalizing the oil resources, which, of course, under natural law or whatever you want to call it, belonged to Iran. And the British from that time on were determined to overthrow that regime. That was what you did when you were an imperial power in those days. And they, of course, tried to draw the United States into it. And the ultimate result was that Kermit Roosevelt of the CIA engineered this coup plan in 1953, which did, in fact, overthrow the elected government of Iran, a popular government that was not by any stretch of the imagination a pro-communist. And in fact, uh, you know, relations with the Communist Party in Iran were tenuous, to say the least. So this is, in a very general sense, the background that uh, I think people need to be familiar with to start the discussion of U.S. policy toward Iran from that time on. Okay, so then the Shah, which is like a king, which which means king in Hindi, so I'm guessing it's the same in Persian, but he was installed and he was very pro-U.S., right? Well, that's correct in the generic sense that, of Uh course, he was the American's man on the throne in Tehran, and he did the bidding of the United States in strategic sense for years. In fact, the CIA continued its role of basically disposing of political forces and creating political forces in Iran by uh, then destroying the Communist Party of Iran over a period of two or three years, I guess. Uh, no, less than that. It, was, it didn't take them a couple of years. It took them some months to track down and kill or imprison virtually everyone in the Communist Party of Iran. And that was a symbolic beginning in terms of the role that the United States would play helping the Shah to establish a police state in Iran. And that police state reigned then until he was overthrown in 1979. Okay, so a lot of people, that is where, I guess, quote-unquote, U.S. anger and propaganda towards Iran gets really out of control. So if I were Iranian, like, what would my perspective be on the whole hostage crisis that that Americans don't know about? Well, on the hostage crisis, that is more complicated than is usually understood because there were a number of different factions vying for power at the time of the overthrow of the Shah. Uh Um, There was a very uh, powerful uh, group of radical students who were taking the lead in occupying the embassy, 
and they were the ones who forced the issue. And in fact, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, had not originally planned to do that. He didn't think that it was a wise thing to do, and his hand was forced by uh, the radical students. He went along with it, I think, reluctantly, as, as I understand the dynamics of that precise period. And so I, I think you have uh, different viewpoints even among the forces that helped to overthrow the Shah about the hostage crisis, in which many of the people who are generally would be considered to be evildoers by the American right, the anti-Iran people in the U.S. government, were actually much more moderate in their views than the radical students at that point. So, I mean, that's just the starting point by way of saying that there's not a very good understanding of the complexities of Iranian politics and of the political system in Iran, which is, it is a a kind of democratic system mm -hmm. with obvious limits on who can run for president, just as there is in the United States. E and exactly. And I keep telling people, at least in Iran, you have to get permission from the Grand Ayatollah, who is like, uh, who, who's supposed to be a decent person. We have bundlers for ExxonMobil deciding who runs for president. So That's right. It's a different cast of characters that fulfills the function, and it's done in different ways. And that is a, uh, a very interesting comparison that needs to be made. I agree with that. What were they demanding? Because didn't the U.S. take something from Iran that they wanted back? I'm trying to remember exactly. What, what are you referring to? The hostage crisis. Like, a lot of people think it was illogical, but I thought the U.S. had taken a lot of the Shah's wealth and weren't giving it oh, back. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I thought you meant the other way around. Uh, yes, of course. The United States did, in fact, uh, confiscate Iranian financial resources at that point and held on to them. And uh, if I understand correctly, there's still some of it that the United States still has. Of course, yes. Okay. A lot of people think it's completely unprovoked in America, and it's not. It's like 100% provoked. <laughs> well, and, and of course, let's not forget that there was also an incident during the Iran-Iraq war mm -hmm. in the 1980s in mm -hmm. which the U.S. shot down a civilian airliner, an Iranian civilian airliner, and killed something like 285 people. By civilian airliner, it would be something like a Delta flight or a British Airways flight. Correct. That's what you, okay. Correct. Exactly. Most people don't understand the purpose of the Iran-Iraq war. Like, at that point, the U.S. was supporting Saddam Hussein over more democratic Iran government. So, Correct. What was the dynamic? Like, why did it start? Yeah, yeah. First, of, first of all, as you've suggested, you know, Saddam was our man. The CIA put him in power in the first place, and they were certainly on very good terms at the time the Iran-Iraq war began. And indeed, there is some evidence. And I'm not prepared to write a story that says the United States told Saddam to go ahead and uh, attack uh, Iran. But there is some, there are some strands of evidence that I have personally heard about from somebody who was well informed about this, uh, suggesting that that was the case. And certainly the United States was at the very least playing the role of supporting both sides against each other in order to weaken both during ah. the Iran-Iraq war. And there's no doubt that the United States did, in fact, provide the arms to the Saddam Hussein regime during the Iran-Iraq war to make sure that he was not defeated by the Iranians. Once he had invaded Iran, the Iranian government counterattacked, of course, and was seriously threatening 
uh, certainly at one point, to actually be able to overthrow the Saddam Hussein regime. They were threatening to do so, certainly through their pronouncements. So that was the setting in which the United States not only arranged for arming conventional arms for the Saddam Hussein regime, but also certainly made it possible for him to obtain chemical weapons. And this is part of the, uh, I must say, very little known history of the Iran-Iraq war. The Iraqi uh, government carried out a, a huge chemical war against Iran over the eight plus years of that war and killed tens of thousands of Iranians with chemical weapons, including, of course, people living in cities, not just troops out in the field. And this leads me into one of the key points in my book, which is that Iran was unfairly accused by the U.S. government of having sort of reciprocated and used chemical weapons against Iraq. And it's simply not true. There's absolutely no evidence whatever that Iran ever used chemical weapons. And indeed, the evidence is very clear that the Iranian government was forbidden by Ayatollah Khomeini to have any weapons of mass destruction, let alone to use them. Yep. I've actually shared that fatwa with my listeners. I'll attach it to this, where he says that it's anti-Islam to have biological, chemical, or any other weapons of mass destruction. Right, and I I presume that you are talking about the current Ayatollah. No, 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 I'm talking about the 1987 fatwa. 87, okay, okay, fine, good, good. Uh, Good for you that you tracked that down, because it, it is obviously not widely known. At all. And I interviewed, by the way, and the article based on my interview was published in Foreign Policy magazine, believe it or not. I still wow. can't believe it. Uh, <laughs> I, I interviewed the IRGC minister of SEPA, mm-hmm. uh, meaning the minister of military supply during that war, who twice during the war met with uh, Khomeini once very early in the war before the War of the Cities, before the, the Iraqis were, in fact, using chemical weapons against civilians in uh, Iranian cities. And then later in the war, relatively late in the war, when thousands were dying in the cities from mm-hmm. chemical weapons. And in both cases, despite the IRGC's pleas to uh, Khomeini to uh, gin up a chemical weapons program, and in fact, they asked him twice to have not only chemical weapons, but biological and nuclear weapons program. He said, absolutely not. This is forbidden under Islamic law. So it never happened, although they tried to convince the Iraqis that they had the capability of doing so. They had a couple of speeches in which they hinted that they could do it, but they they never did, and they had no intention of doing it. Okay, so uh, to me, um, for all practical purposes, like one thing we might want to clarify for people, Iran's government is majority Shia, and almost all of the terrorists usually belong to a branch of Islam called Salafi. So I never understood how Iran it was lumped into the war on terror under Bush, like because they have not committed any acts of terrorism. <laughs> Well, that's a very important question, of course, to understand. And and the answer is relatively simple, because it goes back to the same people who took us into war in Iraq. Uh The people working for Douglas Fife in the Pentagon, or Douglas Fife was, of course, working for Paul Wolfowitz, who was Undersecretary of Defense in the George uh, W. Bush administration. And it was that group and their supporters outside 
who uh, the neoconservatives who were determined to push the United States into war in Iraq, who uh, used the occasion of 9-11 to mm. begin to carry out a strategy of lumping together not only al-Qaeda, but Iran and Hezbollah into all of the enemies that the United States had to get at as a result of 9-11. From then on, from September 2001 until well after the, the invasion of Iraq, this group was constantly propagandizing that the United States must go after all the terrorists, including Iran and Hezbollah. And of course, that is, uh, that's still the case that the people, the Israelis, the pro-Israeli forces in the United States uh, continue to make the argument that both the Sunni and uh, Shia terrorists are similar in their outlook, uh, even though they are on opposite sides on many issues. Okay, I just wanted to clarify for the listeners that Hezbollah is different than you guys think. They're actually a pretty modest militia, but they're like a full army. They rarely attack civilian targets. And right now, like in Lebanon, they're the ones who are protecting gay bars against ISIS and things like that. So the truth about Hezbollah is way different than what the media says. Well, I, I totally agree with that, of course. And I would just add that even some of the people, the more reasonable, shall we say, among the neoconservatives, such as Dennis Ross, I, I know I'm not saying that he's reasonable <laughs> by any means, but he is at least somewhat rational on some things. And he himself has said uh, Hezbollah is not a terrorist organization. They've used force against military targets, essentially, and, and did so you know, during the resistance to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon uh, in 2006. So this is a huge distinction that is simply being overlooked for obvious political reasons in the designation of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization by the United States. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. So now that we kind of got the background information out of the way, can we talk about your book? I'm sorry, I, I just had it in my head. I'm sorry. Let me. Manufactured drugs. Yes, manufactured. I, I was kept on wanting to say manufacturing consent, but it's manufactured drugs. <laughs> yes, right, right. I okay, understand okay. why you'd be uh, inclined towards that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, can you talk a little bit about? how the International Atomic Energy Agency is being deployed in regards to Iran and what the, basically, crisis they're manufacturing? Yes, it's, it's an extremely important part of the story. I would say it's a central element in the story that I tell in my book because part of the strategy of John Bolton and Dick Cheney and their allies within the Bush administration in going after Iran, their plan that ultimately was to result in the United States attacking Iran militarily. Uh, and I can get back to that uh, later in our conversation. But a key part of that strategy was to force the hand of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, 
which is the agency that has the role of basically ensuring that any government that has access to nuclear material is under inspection and that they can guarantee that the IAEA can guarantee that it's not being used for nuclear weapons. Now, this, of course, is in light of the the international agreement of the non-proliferation agreement, which uh, Iran, of course, has been a member essentially since the beginning of the agreement. Uh, one of the first members, in fact, of that agreement was Iran. And uh, uh, they've never hesitated to uh, remain in that agreement. So the point that I want to make here, however, is that very early in the process in which Bolton was working closely with the Israeli government in 2003-2004 to try to make the argument uh, that, that Iran did in fact have a nuclear weapons program. That was his argument from the, the get-go. He was in despair that the uh, director general of the IAEA, Mohammed al-Baradai, was not going to play ball because al-Baradai was refusing to go along with the argument that Iran, that, that there was some reason to believe that Iran was secretly trying to carry out a nuclear weapons program. And so uh, I, I show in my book how Bolton used the ploy of getting a hold of some aerial photographs. They may have been from Mossad or they may have been from the U.S. intelligence community. That was never clear, which were photographs of the Parchin military site in Iran, which, which is the main testing base in the country, that is military testing. So there are sites there where they test bombs. Uh, they, they test uh, conventional explosives. Now, those sites, if you take a picture from the air, from a satellite, you can make the argument that, well, it could some of those things could be used for nuclear-related explosions. And that's exactly what he did. That he tried to pass them off as evidence of possible uh, nuclear weapons work. And it was, it was a shabby trick that, of course, the IAEA didn't go for. Alberti refused to use that as the basis for demanding an inspection of the sites at, at Parchin, as, as uh, Bolton wanted him to do. But he was under strong political pressure from the United States to make such a demand. And, and he ultimately did agree to demand uh, inspection of Parchin. And a year later or so, I, I don't remember the exact number of months, this would have been uh, 2006, the Iranians agreed to allow the IAEA to, to send in an inspection party and uh, to look at six different sites of their own choice. And they did so. And of course, they found nothing. They took their measurements. They took environmental tests of these sites. And they found absolutely no evidence that there was any activity that had anything to do with nuclear at all. Uh, and then the IAEA, under pressure again, demanded another inspection. And so some months later, the Iranians again agreed. They allowed them to do the same thing, to pick six sites. They did the same thing and they found nothing. <laughs> and so, yeah, this, this is the background of, of the IAEA's role. Later on then, the IAEA, there was a guy named Heinonen, who was a, a Finn, who was very close to Mossad and the CIA, worked very closely with them and sort of followed their directions, that followed their, their lead uh, in uh, uh, asking for 
inspections and for uh, starting investigations. And he would open up all these lines of investigation. He opened up about six or seven of them. And to make a long story short, none of them turned up the slightest information that would suggest that Iran did any nuclear weapons work. And in fact, in two of their reports that I detail in my book, uh, they documented the fact that they found nothing. Uh, that was in 2007, in late 2007 and early 2008. I think I've got that right. Maybe it was late 2006 and early 2007. I could be, I could be off. In any case, the IAEA under Alberadai did in fact do its best to find the truth, did in fact in its reports report that it found nothing. And this was a great embarrassment, of course, to the Bush administration, but it was covered up by the U.S. media who refused to uh, report the substance of those IAEA reports that showed they found nothing. How did they cover it? <laughs> well, it's very interesting. I mean, it was it's very tricky language that they used. Instead of reporting what was actually said in those reports, they only reported what the U.S. representative to the IAEA, who was, of course, a, a political appointee of the Bush administration, said as a critique, essentially, of the report, which was that, well, you know, they didn't cover the most important issue, which was the issue of whether there was evidence that, that Iran was actually carrying out some kind of test at this site with sort of a, a renewal of that, of that whole question, which was not something that had been investigated since 2005, 2006. So all of this was taking place in 2008, and it was a travesty of press coverage. And, and it is, uh, carries much of the responsibility for public uh, misunderstanding of this whole issue and allowing, essentially, uh, Dick Cheney and his minions to get away with creating a climate of opinion that was favorable to Cheney's plan to go to war against Iran. But, of course, there's one more element of this, which I haven't talked about, the idea that there was a set of documents so-called laptop documents, and I'll, I'll do this very quickly, and then we can, uh, you can ask questions about it. The laptop documents supposedly materialized suddenly in, in 2007, in the summer of 2004, and documents were turned over to U.S. intelligence and analyzed, and ultimately uh, the verdict was uh, vaguely that, uh, yeah, yeah, there's something there. It looks like that this is serious stuff. And it was all then publicized by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. And the narrative was created that we now have the smoking gun evidence that Iran had a nuclear weapons program. And so what I do in my book is to totally debunk the so-called laptop documents from top to bottom and to show that it was, in fact, a fabrication from the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad. Uh, and, and I can go into more detail, but the people who are interested really should take a look at my book in this regard, because I do have a very detailed analysis from various points of view of that problem. Oh, yeah, we'll include the link to the book in the show description. One thing people may not understand, what is Israel's interests in having Iran destroyed, weakened, or whatever? Right. Thank you for asking that. That's an absolutely crucial question, which is central to my book as well. And in fact, people should know that the cover of my book has 
uh, Netanyahu uh, at the UN in his famous uh, uh, comic book uh, bomb pose, holding a picture of a uh, cartoon bomb and showing, you know, how close Iran supposedly was to having a, a final uh, working bomb. And, you know, the background to that uh, picture and the whole Israeli interest is that it all started in the early 1980s with the labor government of Yitzhak Rabin. He was the first one to accuse Iran of having nuclear weapons interest, of having interest in nuclear weapons program. Up to that time, there had been no uh, suggestion of that. Why was that taking place in uh, 1983? Well, the reason was that Yitzhak Rabin was pursuing a new policy toward the PLO. He wanted to have peace talks with the PLO. He was the first Israeli leader to suggest that policy. And at that point, it was not popular at all in Israeli politics. It was an idea that was not a popular. And he knew he had to have a very strong argument to justify sitting down with the PLO after demonizing them for so long. So what did he do? He created a new demon. He demonized Iran. And his argument was quite explicit. He said, in order to deal with, you know, Iran, the new danger, an existential threat, he called it, to Israel, we need to strengthen the home front. And that means ending this conflict, if at all possible, with the PLO. And so that was exactly what he did. He's tried to push the idea of, of negotiations with the PLO, and in the process, he created this idea of Iran as an existential threat. And I've done a, a long journal article in the Journal of Palestine Studies on this, if people are interested in following the details of this, in which I cover the entire history of the development of that Israeli notion of Iran as an existential threat with nuclear weapons. And it, it has to do also with the Iranian missile program and the sort of portrayal of that as only something, a device to be able to carry nuclear weapons. Well, you know, I point out in my book that the main Israeli expert on the Iranian missile program, uh, who I interviewed uh, in Israel, takes the view, has had the view for many years, that, that this is totally untrue, that, that Iran, like Iraq, viewed its guided missiles as an answer to not having an air force, not having conventional uh, air power. His, his air force uh, basically was uh, lost because the United States cut off its spare parts. He couldn't continue to fly because he had no spare parts. So they had a missile program to try to make up for that so they'd have a deterrent. And this Israeli guy who was in fact in charge of the Israeli anti a missile defense program for 10 years from 1990 to 2000 or 2001 is quite honest about this and has published about it more than once. So um, I mean, it's very clear that uh, people who actually know the truth in Israel understand that uh, Iran's missile program is not a threat to them. One thing for me is why shouldn't Iraq and get nuclear weapons. I mean, if you look at Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, they didn't have nuclear weapons and they got killed anyway. So how can the U.S. be trusted? Well, I mean, that's, that's an obvious question. And believe me that this is what is on the minds of most of the people in Washington who basically embrace the idea that, yes, Iran must be secretly going after nuclear weapons. For example, 
the guy who was Obama's expert or, or his advisor on nuclear weapons proliferation, Gary uh, Seymour, uh, who I interviewed a couple of times um, over the years, has gone you know, public in talking about the, the main reason he believes that Iran was interested in getting nuclear weapons is that, of course, any government in a similar situation would do the same thing. It's the logical thing to do. And he can't imagine, essentially, that a government would refuse to get nuclear weapons. Essentially, it's a, an absolute refusal to understand the role that Shia Islam plays in the governance of Iran. And that's kind of understandable, but it is a blind spot, to say the least. I know there's also some creepy, like, uh, normally these people would be in the fringe, but we have one of them is Secretary of State. How is the Christian extremist embrace of the Republican Party affecting all this, like, Iran policy? Well, it's, it's a very scary situation, I, I have to say. I was late to find, find out about Pompeo's connection with the people who believe in, in the end times, people who believe that there will be a rapture when the ultimate war in what is now Israel takes place and God separates the, the people who will be saved from the people who will not be saved and all the good people, the Christians, will go to heaven and everybody else will go to hell. And I guess Jews will be somewhere in between. But anyway, uh, that, that's the view that people like uh, Pompeo take. And th these people are a huge constituency politically for Trump, which is what makes them so dangerous, because Trump, in a way, feels obliged to play to them and to keep them on board. And this is, this is a problem which is not being discussed, that, that really is a part of the political situation we face that uh, is problematic. And it goes beyond, of course, the Bolton problem is another one, which, which is uh, linked to it because of his connection with Israel and with, you know, his uh, twice he's gotten the prize from the, uh, the American Zionist Association, what's it called, American Zionist, um, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember the last word of the organization, but uh, they have twice awarded him the, the uh, prize for uh, defending uh, the interests of Israel. And he has linked his career with Zionism from the very beginning, from very early on. So you have both of those problems linked together in the Bolton-Pompeo combination. Plus, you have Trump, you know, in a way, infudated by his having depended on uh, Sheldon Adelson's $100 million uh, given to his campaign during the 2016 electoral cycle. It was basically 100 million, if I understand it, in the general election, not in the presidential election, not in the primaries. So you have all of those problems linked together as part of the uh, the mix that that we have to sort out and to address politically. And the press has just not really begun to cover the terrible situation we're in. Okay, so that's why I'm here. Um, can you explain? Pompeo's like comment about rapture and then his actions with Iran and connect them. Yes, of course. Sorry, I, I, I didn't. I didn't follow through and, and of the current, uh, the more recent uh, events that that follow from that. Uh, you're right. So what Pompeo did along with Bolton last year was that in August, when there was an incident or a series of incidents in Basra, Iraq, where there were demonstrators against the uh, current government of, of Iraq and the pro-Iran parties 
and uh, armed groups in Basra. And it was a violent set of demonstrations which went on for like 10 days or, or longer. And uh, many people were killed in the violence, in the repression by the government of the violence. And they torched the Iranian consulate in Basra, uh, as well as other government buildings there. And during that violence, there were rockets fired, uh, or at least one rocket fired into the vicinity of the Basra airport, which is where the U.S. consulate is located, in Basra. And so that was regarded by both uh, Bolton and Pompeo as an Iranian ploy or Iranian move in response somehow to the United States. Then that same night, uh, or within hours, there was a rocket fired into the green zone in Baghdad, where the U.S. embassy is located. Now, the green zone is a very large area, and the rocket fell maybe you know two-thirds of a mile from the U.S. embassy. It wasn't anywhere close, but it was regarded publicly by Pompeo in particular as another challenge to the United States, a threat to the United States, and he, he then threatened that if anything like this ever happened again, that the United States would regard this as something that Iran was responsible for and would retaliate militarily against Iran. Was Iran even connected to it? No, there's absolutely no reason to believe that Iran was connected to it. The two things, uh, the, the rockets in Basra clearly were connected with an anti-Iran protest. And whatever happened in the green zone was either somebody taking advantage of the fact that there had been this rocket attack in Basra, uh, uh, which was regarded as somehow that the U.S. regarded as as anti-U.S., which clearly was not. Uh, It was connected with exactly the opposite forces. And so there's every reason to believe that it was not done by pro-Iran people at all. It was done by people who were on the other side. So that's what happened last year. Now we you know, fast forward to the more recent events. And uh, you know, after the Bolton May 5th pronunciamento, in which he again says that if there's an incident which we can blame on Iran, whether it's Iranian or pro-Iranian forces, we will retaliate against Iran. That was what he said on May 5th. And then a few days later, what happened? Another rocket falls into the green zone. Okay, it was two weeks later. That happens, plus there's the oil tanker attack. The thing about the rocket in the green zone, it kind of seems really fishy. But the oil tanker attack, like we don't even, according to other intelligence sources from like people like the UK, they claim there was no attack. Well, I, you know, I don't know if there was an attack or not. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to believe that there was one, given the holes in the hull. But, you know, who knows what that means? Uh, but, but in any case, this is what we need to keep a very close eye on. And I'm going to be writing about it. I've already written about it once or twice. And I'll have more to say about it. Uh, we're going to have events apparently this coming week or, or this week, either this week or next week. Supposedly something will happen at the United Nations and there will be something presented which will make a case against Iran. So uh, oh, you know, wow. we can expect more events surrounding this. And uh, I have every reason to believe that this will not only be fishy, it will be, it will be information which was fed to the United States by the Israelis which is the whole history of this series of events, that it starts with 
quote, information, unquote, which was passed on to Bolton as part of a series of meetings, uh, secret meetings between the United States and Israel in the White House. I guess they've had them both in the White House and in Israel. But in April of this year, there was a meeting uh, between Bolton and the Israeli National Security Advisor, plus the teams of people from all the major uh, national security agencies of both sides. And that resulted in Bolton basically taking on board information, which he then, it appears, later used as the basis for his May 5th statement. And he got, uh, of course, Pompeo and then Shanahan to sign on to this whole strategy against Iran. And that's what we're seeing playing out now, still, right now. How much of it is some sort of weird allegiance to Israel and how much of it is Pompeo wanting to bring about rapture? Well, I mean, I think that Pompeo has his own reasons. I, I don't doubt that. I and mean, that's a very significant uh, piece of this puzzle. But the larger part is certainly not the rapture, but it has to do with a combination of factors historically and present day political factors that bind the U.S. national security state and uh, the White House at this point to the Israelis. Now, you know, I'd have to distinguish uh, to begin with to try to do a quick summation of those connections between the connection that Trump has with the Israelis and the connection that the various uh, parts of the national security state have to the Israelis. Now, Trump, as I said, has that connection with Sheldon Adelson, and there's no doubt that that's played a role in his thinking. I mean, you know, the fact that Bolton was hired uh, last year as national security advisor certainly is connected with the fact that that he had Adelson behind him. Uh, For example, he called Trump at a very key moment in Trump's making decisions about what he was going to say on the, uh, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, from the Adelson residence in Las Vegas. And so, you know, it was kind of a symbolic indication that he had Adelson behind him. And uh, Trump then took his advice and included the language that he wanted in his next speech. So that's an indication of of that sort of connection. and, And that's a problem. But I think that's the least important of all the connections that we have to deal with. I think that the Israelis are very well-connected with the CIA, with the military, and with the Pentagon and the NSA, all of those agencies, all of those very powerful political forces in American society have very close relations with the Israelis. And so that is, I think, a bigger part of the problem than even Pompeo's connection with the Israelis through the rapture. Um, and, And they are longstanding And they make it possible for a Shanahan, for example, to join in the fun and agree to uh, embrace this uh, conspiracy notion that they have put out that Iran is behind the the two things that we've just talked about, the the, uh, green zone rocket and the the attack, the alleged attack on the uh, oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. There's a, a readiness to go along with it that is extremely uh, troubling. And I, I think it's at higher levels. It's, it's at the management levels. It's not the working levels. For example, the CIA. I'm hearing from people who've talked to certainly uh, w- retired CIA officers who have worked on these issues 
that they don't regard this idea that the Iranians are behind these incidents seriously at all. They think it's a setup, and they they believe that the Israelis are probably some combination of the Israelis, the Saudis, and the Emiratis are behind. Why does the media keep, despite like the U.S. government continuing to lie us into every war? Why does the media like accept Pentagon press releases as truth and things like that? That is really the biggest single problem I think that we we face in this country in this political system, and that's the right question. It's to me, it's a problem that has to do more with the dynamics of the reportorial, the the, the journalistic uh, craft not the craft, but the job itself that journalists have. It has to do with, in covering national security issues, having sources, having access to sources. And as part of that regular traffic between the newsroom and the sources, these journalists very quickly regard themselves as part of the team, part of the national security team, if you will. Uh, it, it is what inevitably happens. If it doesn't happen, then you're not going to last long in the newsroom because your editor is going to expect you to maintain your sources. And if you if you make a wrong step, if you uh, if you write a story that sort of uh, puts you on the, the list of people who can't be regarded as loyal by the national security state, then you're, you're not going to continue to get assignments. And so that is the fundamental dynamic, in my view, that underlies this problem that ensures that uh, every time we have a potential war for the United States or a war, uh, a conflict, let's put it this way, a conflict in which the possibility of war exists, that the newsrooms are going to continue to play the same role over and over and over again. They will never learn the lesson because it's not in their interest, is the way they view it. How do we solve this problem? Is it just having more independent media? Is that the, the that's only? the only that's the only answer? Independent, non-corporate media like who us. are dedicated to the truth is the only answer. Can you tell people how to find you on Twitter? Yes, um, at Gareth Porter uh, is my handle. Is my Twitter handle? Um, I think it's uh, two two caps if I remember correctly. <laughs> Both Gareth and Porter, one word. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much and have a good rest of the day. Thanks so much, Ash. It's my pleasure. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.